Following the sermon, we'll have a time of communion. This table will be open to you. But before we do that, let's listen to what the Spirit has to say as we invite Pastor Allison to come up and speak this morning. Let's welcome her. Thank you, Mike. Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Allison, and I am the executive pastor here at the River. It's really good to be with you this morning. So in today's sermon, we're going to take a look at a story from the book of John. It's a story about Jesus and a man who was born blind. So fun fact, 13 years ago, when I was a senior in college, I gave my very first sermon. And that sermon was about the passage we'll be exploring today. Um, But don't worry, I'm not going to talk about the same things I did then. Um, Because over the years, even though I've continued to find this passage to be very interesting, I've grown and changed a lot. And so the perspectives and questions that I bring to the passage have also changed a lot over the years. And I bet that if I were to preach on this passage again in another 13 years, I would have completely different things to say as well. And that's just one of the amazing things about the Bible. These ancient texts continue to speak to new people, to new contexts, and to us again and again in fresh new ways. So I would invite you, whether you've never heard this story before, or if you've heard it many, many times before, to approach it today with openness to new ways that God's Spirit might be speaking to you today. All right, so let's dive in. The story begins like this. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? As Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they encountered a blind man. Like many in their cultural context, the disciples assumed that the man's blindness was a result of sin either the man's or the man's parents. So the disciples asked Jesus which it was. To their surprise, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. With this statement, Jesus flipped the disciples' cultural assumptions on their head. According to Jesus, the man's blindness had nothing to do with sin, neither the man nor the parents. This was a new way of thinking for the disciples. And I'm sure for the man himself, who likely grew up hearing this kind of messaging. What must it have been like for that man to receive the message that he wasn't sinful after all? It may have been an incredible relief, but perhaps it also felt too good to be true. Now, it is important to note that the next few lines of the passage have led to some pretty harmful beliefs around disability and around the nature of God. So I'm going to read them and then take some time to offer some perspective on um, some ways to think about them. So Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right, so what's going on here? 
According to the way that this passage has traditionally been punctuated in English, the reason the man was born blind was so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, if that were true, in my opinion, it paints a pretty disturbing picture of God. According to that view, God purposefully impaired the man's sight, causing him all kinds of hardship within his cultural context, just for the sake of allowing Jesus to one day happen upon the man and to heal him for the sake of God's glory. If this is what God is like, then God sounds pretty callous and manipulative to me and not very loving at all. But according to some scholars, there is another way to punctuate this passage in English that leads to different conclusions. These scholars find this second way of punctuating the passage to be compelling for a number of reasons. Firstly, they say that this second option is more consistent with how the Greek words in the passage were typically used. Secondly, they say that the second option ties in more clearly to the light versus darkness imagery that is used in the subsequent lines um, and that we see throughout the book of John. And thirdly, they say that theologically, the second option paints a picture of a God who is loving and steadfast. And after all, the Bible tells us that God is love. So this is an important point. So the second way of punctuating goes like this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned so that he was born blind. So that God's works might be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So let me read that again. Neither this man nor his parents sinned so that he was born blind. So that God's works might be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we start again with Jesus' proclamation that the man's blindness was not connected to sin. But rather than move into an alternate explanation regarding the cause of the man's blindness, here Jesus turns his focus to a discussion around the timing of a possible intervention. Jesus said that he and his disciples must intervene quickly before the night comes. On one level, Jesus was speaking more broadly about his ministry on earth. Jesus was saying that he felt a sense of urgency to take advantage of the time he had left before the night, his impending death, to allow as many people as possible to see and experience God's agape love in the bright of day. Jesus was also playing around with some irony here. In addition to talking about his larger ministry, Jesus was speaking about that specific day. As we will learn later in the passage, Jesus encountered and went on to heal the blind man on the Sabbath day, an act that angered many in town. Jesus could have waited until nightfall when the Sabbath was over to heal the man, but he did not do so. Had Jesus waited, he would have avoided controversy, but he also would have been endorsing a system that prioritized righteousness over compassion. Jesus had the ability to help the man in that very moment, and he chose to do so regardless of the expectations of religious tradition. 
Additionally, performing the healing miracle in the daylight had the benefit of allowing more individuals in the town to see and hear about the man's experience with Jesus. So let's take a look at the healing itself. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then the man went and washed and came back able to see. The people of the town had a pretty interesting reaction to the man's healing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. The individuals who saw the man were divided. Some were sure that it was him. Others could not believe it. The man shared his story again and again, but many could not believe that he was the same person. So they brought the man to the local religious leaders. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. Once the religious leaders heard the man's story, they had different questions about the healing than those posed by the people of the town. They did not question whether the miracle had taken place or puzzle over how it had happened. Instead, they were focused on the timing of the healing. The healing took place on the Sabbath, a day set aside for rest and worship when work was not permitted. And many considered healing to be a form of work. Some of the leaders felt that not keeping the Sabbath was such a serious sin that it meant Jesus was not from God. Other leaders disagreed, saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? The people of the town continued to debate the miracle. They questioned the man's parents and argued with the man about his experience, especially about the man's conclusion that Jesus was a prophet. They rebuked the man, urging him to give glory to God, not to Jesus. They said, we know this man Jesus is a sinner. To this, the formerly blind man replied, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man grounded himself in the facts of his lived experience, but the people were not satisfied. They continued to question and argue with the man, becoming especially angry when he revealed that he now considered himself a follower of Jesus. They discounted his perspective, saying, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? 
And so the people drove the man out, following through on their threat that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Jesus heard about what had happened to the man and went to meet with him. The passage says, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. In his second encounter with Jesus, the man learned more about Jesus and began to worship him. And then Jesus made this interesting statement, characteristic of the upside-down character of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Here Jesus was not talking about physical sight, but rather spiritual insight. Jesus was saying that those who can acknowledge their need for improved spiritual insight, like the formerly blind man, have the chance to gain the sight that they lack. However, those who believe that they already have perfect vision will in turn become spiritually blind. Some Pharisees overheard this teaching and were disturbed. They said to Jesus, surely we are not blind, are we? Pretty telling, right? Being unable to consider your own potential fallibility is probably a sign of some blindness. So there's a great website of comics about Bible passages called Agnes Day. That is D-A-Y, not D-E-I. Anyhow, they have a number of comics about this passage, including one that goes like this. It's like the blind guy sees better and better, but the Pharisees see worse and worse. Yeah. Those who think they are blinded and those who, those who think they see are blinded and those who know they're blind see. It's the immaculate perception. <laughs> so humor aside, there's some truth here, right? In addition to gaining physical sight, throughout the story, the man's spiritual insight grew and grew. In contrast, many of the religious leaders and people of the town doubled down on previously held beliefs, like the idea of a connection between disability and sin, or the idea that traditional religious teaching should take precedence over love and compassion. And this wasn't just a back then problem, was it? We see this kind of thing in many religious communities today. When confronted with foreign experiences or new ways of thinking, it can be all too easy to dig in one's heels and cling to what is familiar. When I first preached on this passage all those years ago, I was primarily interested in the first interaction between the man and Jesus, the initial healing. At the time, personally, I was thinking a lot about what a relationship with Jesus looks like and how connecting with God can help us to heal, sometimes physically, but also emotionally. All of that is like really great, important stuff, and I still have lots of thoughts um, about all of it, and I'm happy to chat. Uh, Send me an email if you want to talk about it. Um, But in my laser focus on those topics, I didn't pay much attention to the other characters in the story, 
the man's parents, the townspeople, and the religious leaders, or the man's interactions with them. And I didn't think much about Jesus' second interaction with the man after he was driven away. But there's so much we can gain by looking at these parts of the story. As we enter Pride Month, I can't help but see parallels between the man's experiences and those of many LGBTQ people of faith. The man was told he was sinful just for being born the way he was. Again and again, as the man tried to share his story with those around him, he was not believed. Out of fear of religious authorities, the man's parents found themselves unable to take a stand for him. The man's experiences and perceptions of Jesus were characterized as invalid just because of who he was. And ultimately, the man was driven out of his religious community. These are the types of experiences faced by many in the queer community today. I know that I've personally faced some of these obstacles myself as a bisexual Christian. But what's encouraging to me personally about this story is Jesus. I love what Jesus did in this story. Jesus challenged the narratives around disability and sinfulness that were tearing the man down. Jesus was willing to break with religious tradition for the sake of extending compassion to the man through healing. And Jesus sought the man out in the midst of his exile. While others drew away, Jesus drew closer, deepening his intimacy with the man. This is what God's love looks like. And so as we begin to take this passage to heart, my first suggestion, as cheesy as it may sound, is to try to be like Jesus. We, too, have the power to question harmful narratives and theologies, both for ourselves and on behalf of others who are being harmed. We, too, have the power to prioritize compassion over traditions and norms. We, too, can draw near to those who have been rejected or neglected by those in power. My second suggestion is to be willing to consider your own blind spots. It is important to acknowledge that none of us sees perfectly. We are all limited by our own histories, upbringings, identities, and contexts. When we refuse to acknowledge our blind spots, we close ourselves off to learning and growing. And we make it impossible to truly see, hear, and connect with those around us. Instead, we should try to be like the formerly blind man when he said, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Stand by the truths that you know to be fundamental. But in other areas, acknowledge your limitations. When you're unsure, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. My final suggestion is this. When people share their lived experiences, believe them the first time. This was something that many of the townspeople were unable to do for the blind man. Instead of taking his words to heart, they questioned and challenged the man, making him repeat his story again and again and again. 
how incredibly exhausting that must have been. Unfortunately, this is something we, that we do with great frequency in our world today, especially to those who hold marginalized identities. So let us practice being better listeners. Let us treat people's stories as the precious gifts that they are. Let us approach others' stories not with entitlement or a need to disprove, but instead with gratitude and a posture of open-hearted listening. As I close today's sermon, I'd like to offer an invitation to take part in communion. Here at the river, we typically offer communion about once a month, and it is open to anyone who would like to participate. When we eat the bread, in our case, a wafer, and drink the wine, in our case, juice, uh, we do so in remembrance of God's abundant love for us. Spiritual practices like communion or prayer are important because they help us move from talking about God's love for us to actually experiencing it together. We believe that communion is a symbolic act, but also one that holds significant spiritual power. Writer Rachel Held Evans once said, something about communion triggers our memory and helps us see things as they really are. Something about communion opens our eyes to Jesus at the table. So as the worship team is up here again and they play their first song, I'll be standing at the communion table to pass out the elements. Feel free as the song plays to excuse yourself from your row and come to the front. Whoever you are, whatever identities you hold, whatever your life experiences, God invites you to the table. You are loved and you are welcome. And as we eat and drink together, I pray that our memories would be triggered, that we would be able to see things as they really are, and that our eyes would be opened to the reality of God's unconditional love for us.